welcome back to the official The Last of Us podcast. I'm Christian Spicer. We've concluded our first four episodes where we recapped the story and making of The Last of Us Part One. So now we're taking the opportunity to talk with some celebrity fans of The Last of Us, and these conversations are incredible. In these shorter episodes, which we're calling Artifacts, I'm sitting down with storyteller superfans who are just as obsessed with Joel and Ellie as I am. Today, I'm talking with writer and fellow dad, Mark Bernardin. Let's get to it. My name is Mark Bernardin. Um, I am a television writer and podcaster. Um, I've written for shows like uh, Treadstone and Castle Rock and Alphas and Carnival Row. And right now I'm working on Star Trek Picard. And I do podcasts with Kevin Smith called Fat Man Beyond and one with Trisha Helfer called The Battlestar Galacticast. My experience with The Last of Us came, I, I imagine, as most people's did in that you know, I just picked up the game. Like I heard great things about it. The reviews were really strong. Um, as a gamer, I'm a campaign guy. And so if you tell me that there's some 60, 70 hours worth of, of story that a game is going to give me, that that's what makes me, my ganglia, all get all excited. Um, and so, and Last of Us seemed to hold the promise that it would be this, this massive adventure in this world. And I did not expect, I did not expect what I got on the other side of Last of Us. I did not expect the emotional investment in these characters and their plight um, and some of the decisions that the storytellers made, specifically as you get towards the end of the game. Um, they're, they're uncompromising in the best ways. You know, a thing that I reckon with a lot in, in both TV and movies that I like is the, the idea of fan service, right? Is the, like, you, you are coming to a thing with a certain expectation. Um, this this feels as if it's zombie fiction, even though they're not zombies, they're clickers, and there's all different kinds of rules, but it is post-apocalyptic, some viral pandemic <laughs> uh, took over the world and made things awful. And, and that's kind of the zombie mode, right? But the things that you want from your characters as a, as a viewer are rarely what is best for the characters. And sometimes what's best for them is to push them to places that are uncomfortable and uncompromising and make them make decisions that you can understand both sides of, but one of which is far darker than the other might be. And so, you know, as a as a guy who sort of came of age as a TV writer at the same time a Game of Thrones sort of came of age as a TV show, realizing how in many ways, the best choices for characters are the bleakest and the worst. And, you know, sometimes we don't get what we want as fans. We get what we need. And, and I think that by the end of Last of Us, we, we got what we needed from Joel and, uh, and Ellie. And, uh, and it's awful and wonderful in, in the best ways. Um, without trying to just ask you for spoilers for what happens next on Picard, which I won't do. Um, <laughs> talk about a roller coaster, unrelated show. Um, uh, I would like what you can talk about. I, I think it's a fascinating perspective as a writer. Um, <laughs> what was that experience for you in terms of, were you able to detach and enjoy this as a fan or were you kind of trying to stay five pages ahead as you experience this story? I think the thing that makes video games uh, unique in, in sort of every mode of storytelling is the, is the active mode that you partake in the story itself. Like, yes, there's, there's for sure you are on rails to a certain degree. Like Neil Druckmann had the story he wanted to tell, and so the game is going to do that. It's going to tell that story. But 
you know, as a passive viewer of television and movies, and to a certain degree books, like you're more active in a book and a comic book than you are in a, in a movie or a TV show, because you're building the world um, in your brain. Like the, the book is the blueprint, and you are building the, the, the world that you see and you walk through in your mind. A video game has built the world for you, but you're still actively playing in it. And so it's occupying enough of my brain so that I can't look four steps ahead of where the story might go because I'm too busy trying to survive and make it out of this house because these clickers are still coming around me and I have to do the thing. And and it, it, it doesn't let the the subconscious brain do that work that it normally would do. It's like, oh, wow, this movie's doing this. That's not great. <laughs> I might've done A, B, C, D, or E. But now I'm too busy trying to to survive with nothing but a shiv in my hands um, <laughs> that I that I just don't have the bandwidth to process story um, before it's happening to me, and that's that's a really unique perspective as a storyteller to be so occupied with it for it to engage so much of your mind that you have to take it as it comes. And it's a, a game as well that, in my opinion, it kind of starts at eleven with um, Sarah being killed, Joel's daughter. And mm. as the game progresses, um, you know, this is Spinal Tap. It, it somehow has like a 22 on the dial, you know, as they keep <laughs> as, as they keep cranking. As we start to get into, you know, winter and, and this cold place where people normally are maybe feeling alone, Ellie is trying to save Joel, who's been injured. Mm. And she needs to, um, she, she has this moment where she kills a deer for food. Yeah. And she meets David and James and they want it, and she sees this moment now to barter with them. What do you need? Weapons, ammo, clothes? Medicine. Do you have any antibiotics? I think there's this moment here where Ellie has this realization of like, I, I love this human being, and this is what I'm going to do for them. And I'm curious if you remember kind of that experience as you were playing it, like you mentioned, you can't get 10 paces ahead, but as you're role-playing now as Ellie, no longer as Joel, and she makes this decision to give up something she fought for to hopefully get something in return. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating because it it's storytelling that takes advantage of the medium that you're telling the story in, right? Which is suddenly you have been playing the, the balance of the game up until that point is Joel. And you're doing Joel stuff. And you're doing Joel stuff well, because that's the things that Joel does. And then you shift to Ellie, and things are harder. It's literally harder to do the things that you used to do before. And that is that is making it part of the story that now you're Ellie, and you're in Ellie's POV. And how is Ellie dealing with this world? And how 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 is she she meeting the challenges of it? How is she overcoming those things? And you as a player are also experiencing that at the same time, and you become more invested in it because now you're doing it. It's no longer at a remove, right? Now it's Ellie doing things for Joel and they're hard and she does it and she deserves it and she makes the decisions. You make the decisions in those moments to 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 make those trades, to make those barters, to do that thing for this person who you have come to love in a in a completely platonic surrogate parent kind of way. Um and I think that simply by putting the player in her POV you're shifting that emotional connection between Ellie and Joel and between you as a player and Ellie. And it's it's investing all of that with this new sense of agency and this new sense of import. And and playing the game, I found that fascinating and, and insightful and, and such a simple way to suddenly um, amplify the story by simply just changing the angle through which you're telling it. 
I'm I'm curious if you've um or, or the characters that you've written and kind of birthed into the world or given life to how you've tackled that idea of showing love in a way that um let's viewers know that there is this relationship without having the call you know down the barrel of the lens i love them <laughs> kind of the nuances of of what does that platonic love relationship look like and, and how is it crafted we we rarely say the things we mean um in life and so just putting it on the front street for a character to just say you know what i love you doesn't actually do it as much as showing how they perform that love performative love is what works on screen and sacrifice is is one of the easiest ways um easy being maybe a pejorative word but it's it's a shortcut to conveying that sense of love like what are you willing to do for somebody else that is out of your normal character and how does that portray the level of bond that you now have and so you know living in especially the world of, of the last of us Sacrifices everywhere. You know, it, 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 everything is dangerous. Everything is awful. But the the just the gift of I'm taking care of this person. I'm getting supplies for this person. I'm trying to nurture this person back to health. When the easier thing to do would be to leave them. You know that that is the way. At least the game does a, a fantastic job of showing the love. It's it's show don't tell. It's almost always show don't tell. And I think that giving that story to Ellie. Like we kind of, by that point, we get, you know, why Joel is the way Joel is. We get his, uh, his in- internal trauma. You know, we understand the Sarah story. And so we know the, the closer he gets to Ellie, what that is doing for him. But it's more, what is, what is Joel doing for Ellie? And I think getting to, to be in her head helps us to tell that story. Dovetailing off of that, where Ellie now is the one who fights David and James. And, mm-hmm. and you as the player do that. It's not a put the controller down cutscene moment. It's not Joel runs into the I'm better. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I got this. Yeah, yeah. Runs in. It's it's you as Ellie, as you mentioned, this harder to play character who has her own moment there. And I'm curious if you could talk about, you know, your experience in that moment <laughs> and what it meant for you as a player. That moment was maddening. The moment when they're in that, like, you know, chalet, cabin, kind of restauranty part, and everything's on fire, and you've got to sneak and creep and come up behind him and shiver him in the legs and stuff. I must have played that for, like, a week. Because it was just hard. Because, again, you're so used to being Joel. You're used to being able to just fight mano a mano if you had to. Um, and so with Ellie and the sneaking creep and the, like, every every wrong turn is, you know, behind which lies chaos, that story, you know, that's that character's experience where she is not, um, she has to smart her way out of this. She can't physical her way out of this. And, and making it as difficult as it was helped to tell that story. Help to tell it must it would be maddening to find yourself at this kind of disadvantage from a sociopath um, and having to to literally brain your way out of a problem that could be solved by another character with violence. Um, I think it, it 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 helps you it helps ground you in that character and what she faces and her victories and how her victories feel differently than Joel victories do. Joel's killed, I remember reading online, killed somebody like 578 people over the course of the game. You know, like he's he's a bit of a, of a, of a hacksaw, but this is the one that's the hardest to do, you know, and, and consequently it means more. 
Yeah, and I think there's a nice moment too. I think as a as a player, a lot of us experience that um, whether it's a difficulty spike or just it's not what you had been doing for so many hours. Um, and then as that scene ends, um, Joel holds Ellie as, as she kind of breaks down and cries. Um, I, I believe Joel refers to her as his baby girl. And it, it almost felt like that was for the player as much as it was for the character where it's like, you just went through this. Joel's back. Here's your moment. Yeah. I mean, I am not a fan of roller coasters, like at all. It is not my jam. But the the only reason a roller coaster works is because it has peaks and valleys. It has swells and dips and it has flat moments and it. And story has to do the same thing. Story has to take you to these frenzied highs, but give you the lows so that the highs feel like something. You know, it rewards you for having done something hard. And it gives you that moment to live in that feeling of accomplishment and gratitude. It reminded me there's a a sequence in Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns where Batman is like old Bruce Wayne and his Robin is a young woman who kind of slides into that into that role and like they're off doing stuff in the world and they're fighting mutants and jokers and whatever and there's a moment when she she rescues him from almost dying and and he does like cradle her and he says good soldier you're a good soldier you know and that feeling of you did the thing you did the thing that i wasn't sure you could do and you did it for me and the that level of gratitude and that level of like leveling up like suddenly this character is is not to say better than she was before, but stronger than she was before. And, you know, trauma for as awful as it is, um, nobody would wish to endure it. But on the other side of it, we are different people. And this is Ellie's crucible. I am sure she would rather have not been in that burning, you know, diner, or <laughs> I'm going to choose it's a diner, um, but in that burning building. But she had to survive it. She had to make it through it. And she did. And she's different on the other side of it. And that's what lets her make it through to spring. And as we talked about roller coasters, um, which we won't get into an hour long debate about why they're, they're good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the show is now about Space Mountain and its merits as an amusement ride. Um, <laughs> um, the game certainly has other moments of levity and other moments of love, I think, for the characters and also for the player. Um, one being the giraffes which has kind of become this famous moment in the game. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the the warm and fuzzies come with incongruity. You know, I think that's why the giraffes are are so notable, because they don't feel like they belong in this world, except they totally do. You know, they don't feel like these characters should be... There are moments of beauty in almost everything. You know, like the nature getting to retake the world will yield some semblances of, oh, huh. Wow, didn't expect that to happen, you know. And I, and I love those moments that that make a character who has been living, you know, life and death, and every moment is on the razor's edge, to just be like struck dumb by something so wildly out of character, and for the audience to also live in that moment of it's it's the it's it's Jurassic Park when they first see the brontosaurus when it's just oh my god I never thought I'd see this. And the the story just sits down and lets it live and lets it breathe. And the fact that you've got, you know, somewhere between 40 and 60 hours of gameplay, you have time to let it breathe. You have time to to pick those moments and let them and let them do their job. I mean, there's there's a beat towards the end, I guess it's epilogue almost, where they're like, 
they, they get out of the car and they're crossing a, a, a sort of, they're hopping over a fence or, or crawling between like, you know, barbed wire. And Joel is talking about how he used to go on hikes like this with Sarah. And then they, 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 they mount this crest and you just see the sort of verdant, you know, this, this, this plains with a village below. And it's just, it's gorgeous and it holds promise. And I think that those moments of beauty, what they give for you, they give you promise. They give you the promise of of a finale, of an ending that is worth the trip. I don't think I ever told you, but uh, Sarah and I used to take hikes like this. I think, uh, I think the two of you would have been would have been good friends. I think you really would have liked her. I know she'd have liked you. I bet I would have. down there I wanted to give you a moment to to talk about anything about the game that you wanted that we maybe haven't touched on uh, I know it's a long game and every, everybody has their personal moment well I mean it, it the game for me came at a time when uh when my my daughter was getting to be not quite the same age as Ellie, but she was born in, in 2002. And so by the time I start to play this game, she's a, she's almost like a fresh teenager kind of in a way. And, uh, and, and the father daughter story in this game, um, is incredibly mature and it's incredibly well-realized. And both of these characters, because they're so well-realized, you understand every decision that each of them makes. And, and, you know, thinking of my own personal story of how you would survive with your kid in the apocalypse, one can only hope they would be Joel and realizing, you know, your own personal shortcomings <laughs> in that fashion. And, and also the ways that, that you might find yourself in some fashions a little bit better than Joel would be from an emotional maturity perspective. But by the time you get to the end of the game where Joel lies um, as a father, I completely understand why he lies. And, and I, and I could not, you know, there's, there's a two parts of my brain, which are, um, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, because I'm also a Star Trek nerd, clearly. Um, but then there's the, I'm a dad of a little girl. And if that little girl could save everybody, I might just mortgage everybody to have another year with this little girl. And that particular moral problem I had never seen portrayed in a game before and rarely get to see portrayed in media at all. You know, how your hero makes the wrong decision for the right reasons. And, and, and that's, that's the spark of this game for me. It's, it's putting you in that guy's mindset and putting you in her mindset and taking them all the way there and then facing them with the impossible decision. And he makes the only one that that character could make and then makes you complicit in that decision by making you murder doctors in order to get it done. It, it's putting the player in uncomfortable places morally, um, and most games never get there. And it's to, a tribute to the ambition of the storytellers and the, the, their ability to follow their true north to get there um, is why I've played the game more than once and why I cry at the every time I get to the finale. Um, and it, it, it is... Nothing is perfect, but it is as close to it as I've come in a game. I find fascinating about the game that the ending isn't a choice. Mm -hmm. That no moment in the end was it, hey, what happened? And it's X true Y or X true circle lie. <laughs> and then the ending is like, 
dependent on that. It is, this is the game. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that is, that is authorship, right? That is, here's how I want to tell this story. And here's how me as a storyteller knows how it should end. And you can be complicit and you can be active and you can have agency through much of the game, but you're still going to, to a certain degree, be on rails. And this is a story that is teaching you how to, to absorb it and ingest it and take part in it. But it's still a story. And a story is, to a certain degree, a one-way street, where the, the writer, the storytellers, the producers, the, the godhead from which it springs, know how it should end and know how they want you to feel by the time you get to the end. And if that's the result, if that's the desire, then you have to you have to see that as the player. And that, yes, this is how the story is going to end. And I may not like it, I may love it, but here's what they wanted to say with it. You mentioned, um, you know, as a parent and what this meant for you and experiencing it as your daughter was around the same age as Ellie. Um, and then the ending being what it is, I, I am a parent of, of two young children, seven and, and five right now. But the anecdote or the thought is that parenting is the most selfless thing someone can do. You have to be selfless to parent. And yet this ending could be argued is very selfish. I mean, I think some of it is to a certain degree, the transition from Joel from like loner to hero to parent. Because hero and parent are inherently at odds with each other. Because hero is advocating for the tribe, right? Hero is out doing the thing for the tribe. Parent does not have the tribe to worry about. Parent has the child to worry about. And so by the end of the, of the game, he is a parent again. And a parent only cares about the well-being of their kid. Though the heavens fall, he's going to make sure that this child is safe and sound and healthy and gets to have a life. And if everybody else needs to fall for that, it's an awful decision to have to make, but that's not my responsibility anymore. My responsibility is that person. And and I love it for that. I love it for, you know, the stakes become small and intimate. It is not, we're going to save the world. It's, can we save this kid? But if he dooms all of society, all of humankind in doing so... What life is he giving her? Um, that is valid, as is the other perspective on that, which is, if I save the world and make it awesome and you couldn't be in it, then what did I save it for? You know, based on nothing more than a trailer or two, some of Ellie's story is going to be, you know, even just dealing with that guilt of this exists because he did this to me. He saved my life and doomed everybody else because of it. And I think that that passing is the other thing that parents do, um, sometimes unbeknownst to themselves, sometimes completely unwittingly, but it's passing on a sense of, of, of pain, of genetic pain. You know, like from generation to generation, you, you, you pass the load that you had carried onto your kids, whether you know it or not, whether they know it or not. And so Ellie will have to wrestle with the fact that her pain is that, is she worth it? Like, d d does she, it's the same Private Ryan, right? Like, earn this. Earn the fact that everybody is going to die because you got to live. And how do you deal with that level of pressure? And how do you find for yourself a semblance of peace on the other side of that? Yeah, how do you love in that world? Oh, look, you got your dad's eyes and your mom's <laughs> baggage. Uh <laughs> Precisely. 
Next time on the official The Last of Us podcast, we'll be joined by screenwriter and director Nia DaCosta. My roommates would come into the living room and I like my hands would be shaking and my heart's like pumping. And I'm like, oh, I'm trying to kill a bloater. And they're like, I don't know what you're saying, but cool. The official The Last of Us podcast is produced by PlayStation and Spoke Media. It's hosted by me, Christian Spicer, and written by Brigham Mosley. Thanks again to Mark Bernardin for joining me on today's episode. Our Sony PlayStation team includes Charlie Yader, Christian Cardona, and Carrie Surtees. Our Naughty Dog team includes Arnie Meyer and Scott Lowe. Our production team is Carson McCain, Kelly Kolf, Trey Jones, Reyes Mendoza, and Alicia Force. This episode was mixed by Evan Arnett, who contributed additional sound design and music. Executive producers are Aaliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds. Thanks for listening. Thank you.